Today I invite you to take your Bible, turn to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. This morning we continue our sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance, a study in the Gospel of Luke. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As this morning I read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. From the King James Version of the English Bible. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a son unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the angels said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. I have pretty much come to the conclusion that the Christians living in the first century would not recognize the Christmas we celebrate. I don't think they would comprehend the commercialization of the season. I don't think they would understand the materialism of the holidays. I don't think they would even be able to fathom all of the endless parties and gatherings and office dinners that we go to each year. I don't even think they would really appreciate all of our cute, quaint reenactments of that starry night some 2,000 years ago. I think they would probably charge us with sanitizing the sights and smells of the stable. I think they would indict us in glamorizing the life of a shepherd, romanticizing the love of 
Mary and Joseph and fabricating the creation of an innkeeper. I think that they would indict us as missing the mess in which the Messiah had to sink. And so this morning, I want us to look at this Christmas story with fresh new eyes, as if it was the first time we had ever heard it. Today, I want to give you three adjectives that describe this story. I think these are three adjectives that would accurately describe the understanding of believers in the first century when they came across reading Luke chapter 2. The first adjective is simply this, scandalous. This story is nothing short of scandalous. It's not a cute story. It's not a quaint story. It's not a story that gives us a bunch of warm, gushy feelings. This is a scandalous story. We are told that two young teenagers, Mary and Joseph, were engaged. But yet before they were united in marriage, it was revealed that Mary was pregnant. There's only one way to understand this teenage pregnancy. It would have been regarded as scandalous. In the ancient world, an engagement was a legally binding agreement that required a divorce in order to break. So Mary and Joseph were engaged. They were about to be married. Apparently, this marriage had been arranged for them. I can only suppose that Mary's dad thought Joseph would be a fine son-in-law, and Joseph's father thought Mary would be a darling daughter-in-law. For the longest time, I always thought that arranged marriages were, well, quite, quite crazy. And then I became a dad. And the longer I'm a dad and the longer my children live, the more merit I see in this concept of an arranged marriage. I don't know if it's ever going to come back in vogue, but I do think that it does have some positive pointers about it. And so in this story, the marriage was arranged. Mary and Joseph were set to be married. But before their wedding night, became abundantly clear that Mary was pregnant. You know, you can keep that secret quiet only for a short time. Eventually, it begins to show. And such was the case for Mary and Joseph. Now, there's a stigma even attached today to a teenage pregnancy. We can't even fathom the depth of stigma that would have been in the first century. Can you imagine the stares in the synagogue. Can you imagine the smirks on the street? Can you imagine the rumors that were flying? Can you imagine the gossip that would have been around every watering hole? Nazareth was not a big town. It was a small community. It was a place where everybody knew everybody. And if you ever grew up in a small town where everybody knows everybody, you also understand that everybody knows everybody else's business. If they don't know everybody else's business, then they make up what they think other people's business ought to be. And so everybody knows everything about everyone. Such is the case in Nazareth. Everybody could tell. Everybody knew. Everybody was flabbergasted that this had happened to Mary and Joseph. After all, Mary and Joseph were some of the star students of the youth group. I mean, they, they were the leaders it is Matthew who describes Joseph as a righteous young man. It is Luke who says that Mary 
was highly favored in the sight of God. So you've got the creme de la creme. You've got the best of Judaism has to offer. You've got Mary and Joseph. And everybody speculated. Now, Joseph was adamant that he had never had any sexual contact with Mary. Mary was equally adamant she had never known a man. But everybody in town knew that one of them had to be lying. It takes two to tango, and the proof is in the pudding. And there you go. There's Mary, and she's pregnant. Now, I do need to tell you that popular opinion sided with Joseph. They thought that Mary was promiscuous. And so there was more than one of the elders of the town that pulled Joseph aside and said, our advice to you is to publicly divorce this woman. She has disgraced you and your family and your name. You can't put up with this. You need to publicly shame her. Now, Joseph is a righteous guy. So he concluded in his mind that he would divorce her, but not publicly, but rather he would do it privately. I think he would have done it had it not been for that angel and that dream. We are told that one night uh, Joseph had a dream and an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife for what's conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You'll give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph woke up and he was convinced. He was convinced that he had heard a word from God that that was an angel of the Lord, a messenger who gave him a word from the throne room of grace. So Joseph went to Mary and said, I am not going to divorce you publicly or privately. I believe you. I am with you. For the angel that spoke to you has spoken to me. And I am convinced that what's inside of you is conceived by the Holy Spirit. I believe your story, Mary. And even though, and especially because, Joseph refused to divorce Mary, the story was even more scandalous. So, when Caesar issued a decree that a census needed to be taken of the entire Roman world, Joseph saw this as a great opportunity to get Mary out of the lion's den called Nazareth. This story is scandalous, first and foremost. But secondly, this is a scary story. Don't make two bones about it. This is a scary story. This is a scary story for Mary and for Joseph. They've got to go back to Bethlehem because Joseph is of the house and lineage of David. It would have been a 90-mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, you and I don't think twice about traveling 90 miles. That's like going from here to Huntsville. We think, well, it's going to take about an hour and a half. Yet we're not traveling with the same mode of transportation as in the first century, which was primarily by foot or on the bouncing backside of a donkey. It would have taken Mary and Joseph the better part of five days to make this 90-mile trek. This journey would have been treacherous for anyone, especially a teenage pregnant woman who's in the third trimester of her pregnancy. I can well imagine that Mary is scared to death. I mean, she knows that in all likelihood, she's going to deliver this child someplace other than her hometown of Nazareth. I mean, she knows that she's going to make this journey, and there's no way they're going to get back in time. She's going to have to deliver in Bethlehem. 
And Mary's at that point where she just feels fat and ugly. Her, her ankles are swollen. Her back aches. She can't get a breath. She hadn't had a good night of sleep in weeks. And now she's got to ride a donkey 90 miles from Nazareth to uh, Bethlehem. No wonder the Christ child came. Can I get an amen? I mean, you know, I mean, you take that journey. No wonder it came time for her to be delivered. When they get to the city streets of Bethlehem, the town is, is buzzing, but it's not buzzing with joy. People are irritable and cranky and rude and obnoxious. Get out of my way. I've got to get in line. They were angry because of the long lines at the Census Bureau. They understood that the only reason they were there is because Uncle Caesar wanted to reach his hand once more into their deep pockets and pull out some more of their hard-earned money. Everybody knew they had to go back to their city of ancestry because of taxation purposes. I don't know anybody who likes to be taxed by their government. You don't like to be taxed by your American government. They didn't like to be taxed by their Roman government. And everybody was irritable. Everybody was cranky. Everybody was rude. This is a scary sight. It's a scary place. Bethlehem is buzzing and brimming with people. The streets are packed. The Census Bureau is overflowing. And I can just use my sanctified imagination to understand that there's probably nobody working at the Census Bureau that really likes their job. Because nobody who works for our Census Bureau likes their job either. I mean, you ever had to stand in line to get a tag or a title or anything like that? And I, I'm convinced nobody likes their job on the other, other side of that counter. I try to make it my, my, my point to try to make them smile. It doesn't work. <laughs> Next. You know, I mean... And if that's the case for us, it certainly had to be the case in the first century. Nobody's excited. Nobody's happy. Nobody wants to be there. And then the water breaks. And then it becomes time for Mary to deliver. And what is Joseph going to do? Luke simply says there's no place in the inn. Now, oftentimes we visualize a heartless, ruthless innkeeper who slams the door in their face. I remember a couple of years ago, I was going to preach a first-person narrative sermon from the perspective of the innkeeper. I kind of wanted to redeem this guy. I wanted to, you know, cast him in a better light. And so I was going to preach a sermon, and I was going to dress up like the innkeeper, and I was going to tell his side of the story. But I wanted to be biblical about it, and I wanted to be accurate about it, so I began to read commentaries. And all the theologians that I very well respect, none of them mentioned anything about an innkeeper. So I called my preaching professor from Gordon-Conwell in Boston, Massachusetts, and I called Haddon Robinson. I said, Doc, I, I really want to do a first-person narrative from the perspective of the innkeeper, but I can't find any good material from any well-respected theologian. Can you please help me out? Now, you need to know that Dr. Robinson grew up in Harlem. He grew up, before he met Christ, in a gang. And so he still, even though he's very much saved, he still has a pretty dicey disposition. So when I told him, um, can you give me any advice about what I need to do? He said, yeah, I can give you some advice. You need a new sermon. 
He said, there's good reason why nobody writes about the innkeeper. It's because the innkeeper doesn't exist. And I said, but, but wait a minute. I've seen his picture in the children's books. <laughs> and over the phone, he said, are you kidding me? He said, this is a figment of our imagination. We've created this. For Luke to say there's no room in the inn is not to say there's no room at the Sheraton or there's no room at the Motel 6. He's saying there's no room in the campground. It would be like you're going to go camping at Oak Mountain or Tanny Hill and you go up there and there's no space. There's no room at the campground. There's no room at the inn. There's nobody that manages this thing. There's no innkeeper. It's just that Joseph walks up and he sees there's no spot. There's no space. It is so crowded. So what's Joseph going to do? Joseph is probably more intuitive than any of us give him credit for. Now, even though he's back in his own hometown, even though he's back in his city of ancestry, even though he's of the line and lineage of David, so he had to go back to Bethlehem, apparently he has no family members that like him in Bethlehem because there's no place for him to house for the night. But he does realize this is the time of year when most shepherds are out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Maybe there might be an open stable. And so he begins to search the city of Bethlehem, looking for a stable. Maybe not a stable that was empty completely, but one that was open enough that could get them in out of the elements. And sure enough, that's what he found. He found a stable. And it came time for Mary to be delivered. And she brought forth a son bouncing baby boy she wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she laid him in a manger we read that and we think oh how cute and Luke who is a physician by trade says oh can you believe she just placed the Christ child in a cattle trough she placed him in a manger Luke, the doctor, says this three times. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 16. On three occasions in these 20 verses, he says, don't miss this. She placed him, not in a crib, not in a bassinet, in a manger. Jesus, the Christ, is placed in a cattle trough. He's born in a barn. I think that Luke, who has... A great perspective because he writes his gospel after uh, some of the others have already written theirs. He, he knows the stories. He, he knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. He also is a very crafty author for he knows that the Hebrew word Bethlehem is a compound word, Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. And in the house of bread, Mary places the bread of life in a cattle trough. He says, don't, don't miss this. This is amazing. This is astounding. Don't sanitize the sights and sounds of the stable. I mean, the good Dr. Luke, he knows, 
how this could go awry. He knows how this could be very fragile, how this could not be very sanitary. And yet Luke says, according to the word and will of God, Jesus was born in a barn and placed in a cattle trough because he is the very bread of life that sustains us both now and for all of eternity. And Jesus was born. God wrapped himself in flesh. Think about how fragile this is. The way for God to get to earth was through the birth canal of a virgin girl. Infant fatality in the first century is far greater than it is today. It was a legitimate concern. It was so fragile for Jesus to come as an infant, as a baby. Yet, even though it was fragile, this was faithful to the very word of God. Because God had predicted this is how the Messiah will come. The virgin will conceive and give birth. Luke says, I write this so that you can have blessed assurance. You can be certain of the things that you have been taught. This must have been a scary story. It's scary for Joseph and Mary to make the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It is a scary prospect uh, for uh, Mary to deliver right there uh, in, in, in the city of Bethlehem in a stable of all places. It's a scary thought for Mary and Joseph to raise God. Every parent I know is scared out of their minds the first time a baby comes. This baby doesn't have a manual. This, this baby doesn't have operating procedures. We don't know what we're going to. And every mom and dad scared to death. What do you do with this little bundle? Can you imagine on top of that realizing that this little bundle is God? I suppose that whenever Jesus left the house as a as a 10-year-old boy, and if he left the door open, it's not like his mom could say, what, were you born in a barn? <laughs> it's not like that she could correct Jesus. I mean, he's perfect. He doesn't do anything wrong. I mean, Mary and Joseph have the audacious task of raising perfection. How do you do that? This is a scary proposition. This story is not only scandalous, it's also scary but the third adjective, this is a spectacular story. This is a spectacular story. There's no two ways about it. Whenever anyone of royalty was ever born, typically in antiquity, a poet would make the pronouncement. That poet would make the announcement in the audience of a king or other royal dignitaries. And that announcement made in front of dignitaries was always made in palace halls. But Luke writes that this birth announcement doesn't come from poets. It comes from an angel. It's not given to royal dignitaries. It's given to shepherds. Not given in palace halls, but pasture hills. Do not be afraid, the angel said. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. This shall be a son unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And all of a sudden there was with that angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace upon whom his favor rests. What a great announcement. 
It's an announcement that comes from the throne room of God. It's an announcement that comes through the messengers of God, the angels themselves. It's an announcement that's given to shepherds. Shepherds are low people on the social totem pole. They're uneducated. They're they're, uh, uh, oftentimes illiterate. They're not well-respected. They're regarded as dirty and despicable individuals. They leave their families many months of the year. Nobody respects a shepherd, yet they're the ones who receive the royal decree, not in palace halls, but on pasture hills. What a spectacular story. What a reversal of the gospel. That's what the gospel does. That who is first becomes last, he who is last becomes first. There's a great swap, a great reversal of the gospel. We who are sinners can be declared saints because the one who is the holy one became sin for us. A great reversal of the gospel. When the angel said, um, I bring you good news. That word you is second person plural. It's not just to you singular or you singular. It's to y'all. It is to you all. It is to everyone who will listen. And it is good news. That Greek word for good news is euangelion. It's the word for gospel. The angel says, I proclaim the gospel to you. Anytime in scripture when you see the word good news put together, you can insert the word gospel. That's what it is. This is the gospel. It is the good news of great joy. The word great in Greek is mega. It's this mega joy. It is massive joy. It is ginormous joy. This gospel is of great joy and it's given to you. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. The word Christ is not the last word of Jesus as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. The word Christ reveals his title. It reveals who he is. It reveals his identity. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior of the universe. And the angel said, he's come to you. This will be a sign of you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And as soon as the angels left, the shepherds said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing which was told to us. This is amazing. This is the minor miracle of the story that shepherds left the sheep in the pasture. Rule number one, if you're a shepherd, don't ever leave the sheep. Yet these guys do. Because they heard something better. They heard something mightier. They went looking. What were they looking for? Well, we want to say they were looking for the cosmic Christ. They were looking for the mighty Messiah. They were looking for the sovereign Savior of the universe. No, they weren't. They were looking for a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. How many of those are you going to find on this night in Bethlehem? One. That's it. You're not going to find a bunch of babies born that night, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You're not going to find that. You're only going to find one. So these cats, they go and they look at stable number one. There's not a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So they go over to the other stable because the shepherds know where the stables are. So they go to the other stable. He's not there. They go to the stable on the northeast corner of the city of Bethlehem. And there they walk in and voila. There's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, 
lying in a manger. They begin to tell Mary and Joseph what the angel had said to them. And Mary and Joseph say, yeah, we know. And there, there's a sermon that goes on. That there's a proclamation of the gospel. There's the affirmation of the gospel. The shepherds declare, Mary and Joseph receive, and they declare, and the shepherds believe. And there's, a, there's an amazing transaction that happens right there in the stable. And Mary ponders all these things in her heart. And the shepherds, they say, you know what? We got to go back because we got to watch over those sheep. And along the way, every person they met, they told about what they'd seen and about what they heard. These are some of the first missionaries. These are some of the first gospel missionaries. They go and they bump into everybody and say, you've got to go to the stable on the northeast corner of the city of Bethlehem. You're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, and he is the Christ, the Son of God. You've got to go. I'm telling you, you won't believe it. And they are so filled with joy. You can't shut them up. It's the NIV version that says that the shepherds hurried off. King James says that they, with haste, went. That translation that says that they hurried off. They hurried off in obedience. You know what happens sometimes when God gives us a word? Instead of hurrying off, we put off. We'll get to it. We'll do it tomorrow. We'll do it next week. We'll get to it. We put it off and we put it off. If this spectacular story tells you anything, it says that when you see the Christ child, when you hear a word from God, when God's word speaks to you, you cannot put off any longer. You must hurry off and go tell. So this morning I wonder, is there any aspect of obedience that you have put off? Maybe it's a decision for Christ and you've put it off. Maybe it's a conversation that needs to happen with a friend or family member and you just kind of put it off. Maybe it's a relationship that needs to be reconciled and you just kind of shoved it aside and put it off. Maybe it's a toxic relationship that needs to be broken and you're putting that off as well. Jesus tells us don't put off, hurry off. Hurry off unto obedience. Oh, these shepherds, they, they reduce the lag time, the lag time that exists for you and for me between when we're told what to do and we actually do it. Their lag time was reduced to nothing. It was immediate. They heard and they went. Some of us, we hear and we wait and we wait and we wait till we hear again and we wait and we wait and we wait. Then we hear again and instead of hurrying off, we put off. Oh, my friends, this is a spectacular story. That God told the shepherds, you go to the stable, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now why would God tell shepherds? It seems like a wasted announcement. Why not tell the kings? After all, Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. Why not tell the dignitaries? I'll tell you why. Because the shepherds knew where the stables were. And also, if you're going to tell good news, people need to first understand the bad news. And shepherds knew they were broken. And shepherds knew that they weren't well respected. And shepherds knew that they were hopeless and helpless in need of something greater. So God says to the shepherds, you go. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This, my friends, is a great story. 
One of the greatest stories ever told. It is a scandalous story. It is a scary story. It is a spectacular story. It's a story that must be repeated. We cannot be guilty of the sin of silence. We must go and tell. I receive a lot of Christmas cards. You receive a lot of Christmas cards. A couple years ago, I received a Christmas card that caught my attention. It simply said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. Therefore, God sent us a Savior. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. This shall be a sign unto you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So now, go and see. Go and see this Christ child that God sent for your salvation. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this story. Lord Jesus, we Pray that if there's anyone here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, that today will be the day of their salvation. As they peer into the manger, they will see the Messiah. Lord, for those of us who are believers, yet we have put off some aspect of our obedience, help us today to say no longer. For today and every day forward, we will hurry off unto obedience. Help us to go and tell the good news that Christ is born. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.